This is an AMI podcast. I'm Kelly McDonald. I'm Ramia Amadin, and this is Kelly and Ramia. hearing from fans of the show and hearing from people who, as, as Matt put it, you know, just people who've run in the circles of Kelly and Company slash Kelly and Ramia for years, getting everybody in one room together and just celebrating, recognizing, having a lot of fun. Uh, that's what we did at our primetime special taping in late November last year, and now it's available for everyone to check out. Kels, it was so Good. It was so nice for um, Megan to put this together, for Grant to kind of get it behind the scenes of people's reactions and responses to being part of our primetime special. And it's just overall a lovely memory to have. Oh, my goodness. Right off the top, just showing some of the stuff going on in there. Yep. In case people were wondering, it was just so much of the setup. We were blown away by uh, Apple Orchard's setup, all the equipment they had, all the people in place. It was new Would to you us. Like to do that kind of thing once a year? Yeah, absolutely. It was it. very new to I mean, us. <laughs> Maybe the budget could manage it once a year. Yeah, I'm wink, wink, sure, nudge, but, nudge. Uh, um, also, by the way, just as a throwback to the conversation about Tim Hortons um, donuts that are coming back because of their anniversary oh, celebration. Geez, thanks, I forgot to look. Yeah, yeah, we got the Dutchie and three others that are joining the um, limited edition bringing back of nostalgic donuts, and that is the blueberry fritter, cinnamon sugar twist, and walnut crunch. This is all starting oh, wow. January 10th for limited time only. So if you're interested, I'm in... a Walnut Crunch fan. Are the you? Other ones, they're not as well. They're retro, but they're not. I feel like blueberry fritter would be nice. No. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't like it as much. I can eat it, but didn't like Even it sugar as crunch? much as the crunch. Yeah, but if I was gonna th- those other ones more than mm-hmm. the Dutchie would be the other ones I'd go after. Cinnamon is always good. So and the raisins too, but rummy is not on nope. board. No, no, not at all with that. Uh, folks, I, one of the great things is we get a chance to check around the country. We do it with our community reporters. We do it with so many people that join our program all the time. Every first Thursday of the month, we're joined by Laura Bain, who brings us accessibility news from the East Coast. And Laura, welcome back. Happy New Year. I Happy New Year. really love the first item we're going to start with because the other day I was watching the news here locally and a fellow who puts together our big sun fest, Alfredo Fedora's off to you, buddy. He is also being uh, honored by, of course, receiving the Order of Canada. Now, um, Governor General Mary Simon recently announced 78 new appointees to the Order of Canada. Laura, will you fill us in on more? Um, Yeah, that's right. So uh, the Order of Canada is the highest level of distinction in the Canadian honour system, just to give a little bit of background. And it's given to people who are considered to have made an extraordinary contribution to the country. So there's three levels. There's companion, which is the highest, and officer and member. So as you mentioned, this honour was given to 78 recipients this year from a wide variety of disciplines, including artists, writers, advocates, um, uh, you know, people from the fields of science and medicine, so on. Uh, So one appointee that I thought that people might recognize is George Strombolopoulos, just a name that a lot of people know, particularly if you're my (laughs) age, you might remember him from his time as a much music VJ and from the host of his uh, CBC show, The Hour. So he was appointed as a member for his contributions to Canadian media and journalism. So just kind of showing that it's from a real range of disciplines that they, uh, they give these to people. Um, okay, so what about the recipients recipients from your region, which is Atlantic Canada? 
Yeah, that's right. Um, so there were lots of recipients from Atlantic Canada. All four Atlantic provinces were uh, represented. I want in particular to start by highlighting Deantha Edmonds from Newfoundland and Labrador, who was appointed as a uh, member of the Order of Canada for her significant contributions as Canada's first Inuk professional opera singer, as well as her original mm. compositions and her mentorship of young Indigenous musicians. And I believe we actually have a clip that we're going to play uh, that I selected and this is of her singing How Beautiful Are the Feet from Handel's Messiah and this is her own adaptation where she's singing in Anutatut so if we mm. want to give that a little listen. I don't know what to do I don't have any way to adjust it. Or just, oh, that felt way too short. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really a nice clip. And I love, Laura, what you brought up about the fact that these are people from a variety of disciplines, walks, and there's the different orders you can get due to the fact that to be so inclusive. And I'm not sure how many people they try to average, how many, I think, I'm sure it's just a, let's find those deserving that we want to recognize and stuff like that. Can we talk about if there was anyone to, to your recollection from the disability community? Yeah, for sure. Um, now, I did go through the full list of all of the recipients and like read through their achievements. And I was sort of surprised that disability didn't come up more and work within the disability community, mm. um, especially given like kind of you know, all the policy things that have been happening at a national and provincial level. Mm -hmm. But one exception and one recipient that stood out to me also from the province of Newfoundland and Labrador is Francine Lemur. And she was honored for her accomplishments as a Paralympic cross-country skier, as well as for her contributions to family medicine. Um, so I hadn't heard the name before, but um, that's because, you know, maybe it was a few years ago she represented Canada in the 1984 and 88 Winter Paralympic Games, winning gold in 88. But she also had over a 40-year career in family medicine, practicing wow. in particular in Cornerbrook. And then she went on to become the CEO of the College of Family Physicians. So I think it's cool to be honored kind of on both fronts. But one reason mm -hmm. I really wanted to bring that forward is because we don't hear a lot about uh, physicians with disabilities no. so i thought that was really cool i love that that is so amazing and again i you know i know we get into this well okay no, you know the, because if you spoke to her she well, guys i did what i wanted to do it was what i aspired to do i did it and and i i get all that um but it's just something so amazing because like you say we we don't maybe hear of this person because they're going about their business and this is the mm -hmm. only way we can get that chance to to really recognize them so i i, I love that that was really incredible yeah yeah, well, they're just out there doing the work. Exactly. Yeah. And let's continue recognizing that diversity because you wanted to highlight Elder Albert Marshall from Nova Scotia. Yeah, and this is someone that I was familiar with. So Eld Elder Albert Marshall is from the Mi'kmaq community of Eskasoni here in Cape Breton. And he's particularly well known for his concept of two-eyed seeing. And so this is something that has come up in my social work program is why I'm familiar with it. So two-eyed seeing, it's a way of approaching issues that brings together Indigenous and kind of Euro-Western ways of looking at things. So to quote from Marshall, who will explain it a lot better 
than I would. Two-eyed seeing refers to learning to see from one eye with the strengths of indigenous ways of knowing and from the other eye with the strengths of Western ways of knowing and of using both of these eyes together. So it's a much more holistic approach and it can help with the issue of culture clash, and Indigenous knowledge being marginalized within certain disciplines, so in particular like Indigenous students and Indigenous pro um, professionals being marginalized. And if we think of like research, so this is how it came up in my program because we talk a lot about research in social work and being done from like a Euro-Western paradigm, the researcher is viewed as being objective and kind of necessarily separate from whatever they're mm -hmm. studying. But right. from an Indigenous perspective, there's an emphasis on interconnection and relationship between things. So, you know, historically, there's been a lot of done research done on Indigenous communities by like Western scientists, and that has done harm to these communities and participants. And also the research hasn't been like as good as it could have been. So, um, you know, at a minimum, two-eyed seeing means involving the community and shaping the research, but it's also kind of more importantly a way for Indigenous people um, to bring their traditional knowledge into their professional work. So maybe they um, have been trained in a like Western fashion in university and they're not having to kind of take an either or having to choose or feel like they're sort of cutting off a part of themselves. So um, just really important work that he's done and it's being integrated into a lot of university programs across the country and a lot of different important research projects. Interesting, because so many times, like you say with the Western, we're observing. We're standing by, observing to try to figure out what conclusions we can draw and how we can support and help. And I love the the one eye does this from that level, one eye sees from this, this perspective. Um, and I think, Laura, maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm, again, trying to enlighten it too much to the disability community, but I think we tend to hope that people will look out one of our eyes and get some kind of concept and appreciation and understanding so that we can solve some of the troubles and issues that might be out there or at least be relatable. Yeah, well, it's really this sort of myth, myth of objectivity that has ex mm. existed in a lot of academic disciplines, you know, um, where we have kind of come to understand that this like quote unquote objectivity actually holds a lot of bias that comes from a privileged perspective. So absolutely, I think this is something that is being seen as this sort of like breakdown of this traditional separation of the researcher as objective because really none of us are ever objective and the knowledge that we're using never comes from a place of object, uh, like being objective, it is informed by our backgrounds and our learnings and all that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Laura, we'll switch uh, directions here. Just going to go uh, down a different road. Today is World Braille Day, and you wanted to bring this forward because you are in that process of learning Braille. Cool. Yeah, um, and I'm not sure if you guys, have you guys talked about it yet on the show today, today that it's World Braille Day? Uh, Kelly did a shout-out for Double Tap. Yeah, just, yeah, because I was with the gang on Double Tap today talking Braille. Yeah, right on. Um, so yeah, it is World Braille Day, and this happens every year on January 4th. And the reason for that date is because it honors Louis Braille. That was his birthday, aka the kid who invented the system of Braille. Um, so World Braille Day, it was only first celebrated in 2019 after a proclamation from the United Nations. So it is a relatively new thing if people are thinking, well, I haven't heard of World Braille Day. Why didn't I hear about that when I was in school? But 
you know, I know you guys have talked a lot about Braille on the show, but I think it's just important to highlight it and mention the day because Braille really fell out of popularity, in my opinion, um, kind of in the 90s and early 2000s because people thought that technology screen readers was basically going to replace it. But now we have a better understanding of just how essential Braille is for blind people's independence and in particular, how important it is that blind uh, and partially sighted youth are taught Braille. Um, so I do wish I was fully proficient in it. Um, as you mentioned, I am taking Braille lessons right now, or I, I started attending a Braille group that's informal, and that works a little bit better for me than something you have to attend every time. Right. Um, but I do have a schedule conflict now, which makes it a little more challenging. But, you know, reading Braille would allow me to do things like uh, give a speech, for example, and read from my notes, because that's not easy to do when you're listening to a screen reader, mm. or say, like trying to find your place in, you know, a, on a, on an iPad or printed documents where you've right. got 40 point font, um, which is what I'm doing now. When you guys, <laughs> when I do these segments, I've got it blown up huge on my screen and it's so easy to lose my place. Right. But people sure. didn't think of that when they thought, Oh, technology is going to replace it all. So, you know, there's lots of things like music and math and poetry that all really kind of lend themselves to mm -hmm. Braille and not necessarily to a screen reader. But I was just kind of curious about you folks. I know, Kelly, I think at least you learned it in school, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. at W. Ross. But do yeah. either of you kind of read Braille or use it in your daily lives at all? I took it upon myself to learn grade one Braille uh, as a late teenager, young adult, because I didn't have it growing up, Laura. In fact, I was discouraged from learning it because um, a lot of people in my life at, at the influential time uh, of being in kindergarten, they were like, no, you have enough vision. Just be a low vision person and use large print. Um, and eventually I was like, I would really love to learn Braille. I feel like there's a lot more three-dimensional understanding of a language when you can um, feel comfortable reading, understanding punctuation, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm not great with grade two yet, but it's what I love is that we can all share different journeys of learning Braille because the resources are out there for adult learners, for people who already know the language but are just learning Braille now or uh, can kind of take their time with it as well. Mm. People say sometimes that it's slower. It's not. Of course not. And there's so no. many different conveniences that you can use, such as picking up a calendar if you if you have access, if you have access, because some of the things are less now. I mean, I think the, the world of computers we spoke about on the show today really was helpful to understand how that has moved Braille forward. And one of the things mm -hmm. I am liking it to is when people use print writing. We're getting rid of paper as much as we can, going to a paperless environment. And a lot of that may mean yeah. you're not sitting there with a Perkins Brailler and brailing, but... And physically having Braille, maybe you are. Maybe you're using it for tactile for a map or directions, whatever it might be. But a huge part it's of still universal design. Living, right. Mm -hmm. It's still living with whether it's a screen, a Braille screen, whether whatever you might be able to use it for, having that access in certain circumstances are wonderful. I mean, Laura, you know, doing stand-ups for AMI TV, it's a bit tough out in the field, you know, standing there with any paper flapping around, whether it be Braille or or print. But I really am liking it to the differences that people have doing print work, writing, and utilizing technology as well. Hey, man, we're doing the same with Braille in different ways. So no, no, it's not dead. It, it's really surfacing and being used differently, just like print. Thanks, Laura. Mm. 
Yes, and I should mention I do have a Perkins Brailler on uh, on the table behind me oh. that I uh, dug out. It was from uh, <laughs> when I was a teenager. I dug it out of my parents' basement, and I've been relearning on that. But yeah, it can relate to so much of what you guys have each just said about it, and of course about that intersection of technology and Braille and how it is kind of moving it forward. Well, the only thing I hate with mine is I don't use it enough and often have to fix it because it gets stuck. But mine, I got when I was 10 years old. So I hear you. Thanks. Yeah, thanks so much, guys. Thank you. That's Laura Bain. And the on the uh, first Thursday of the month, uh, we talk to her and get accessibility news from the East Coast. After the break, we have our weekly roundtable staple Thursday conversation with Kelly, who picks the topics, myself, and our guests of the week. This time, we're checking in with Mark Phoenix. We'll be right back with that on Kelly and Romia. It's fun, insightful, and inclusive. Kelly and Ramya return in a minute. Hi, I'm Stephen Scott. Join me every day for Double Tap. It's a show where we occasionally talk about technology for blind and partially sighted people. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> 